You never know who you're going to meet at a Hollywood job and what kind of unexpected path you're going to take after a chance meeting. I started working at Disney in the mid-2000s, and that is where I met John Crane. He was a real character. He was a mild-mannered office person at work, but just like me, he was a total wise-ass off the clock. Little did I know, there was a reason for that turn-it-on-after-work spirit that he had. John was a black belt karate fighter, an up-and-coming stunt coordinator, but above all, he was a world-class comedian who came up through the comedy store on the Sunset Strip during the 80s, back when it was in its heyday with Jim Carrey and Richard Pryor and Steve Martin and David Letterman and Charlie Hill and all these different comedians. Everyone wears many hats in Hollywood, and he had tried on about as many as I had. So we went to lunch, and we got along really well. Soon I was taking a comedy class at Amy Poehler's Upright Citizens Brigade, and John was mentoring me as I tried to find my voice and my persona at the comedy clubs around L.A. So let me introduce my listeners out there to the very, very multi-hyphenated John Crane. Hey. Hello. Hey, John. Are you there, man? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can definitely hear you, Mr. Multi-Hyphen. How are you doing this afternoon? Yeah. I'm doing good. How about you, man? It's been a good, while. Good, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been a little bit. Well, you know, yeah. the state of the world right yeah. now, it's a little bit hard to talk to each other. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on my uh, almost infamous podcast here on the Hollywood Greg Network. And uh, basically just wanted to talk uh, at first about how we met. Uh, I know we met when I was working at Disney, and uh, uh, you started a little bit after I did, and you were working in the office. And uh, so, what was your state of your career right then? At that point, what I was doing was I signed a contract with a publisher to write a book, a textbook on the art of fight choreography. It it, it was supposed to have been a one year contract, it ended up being three and a half years. Um, wow. What ha- yeah, what ended up happening was it was a small publishing company, and then uh, it got swallowed up by um, different publishers every year. So I was always having to read, re- uh, had to kind of wait and see if my contract would be ne- renegotiated and still on the roster. So I went through a few, lasted through a few of those, uh, quite a few of those um those changes and that was kind of rocky you know but but you know it what happened was uh yeah i thought i was going to get it done in a year but it ended up being bigger than the project ended up being bigger than i envisioned and it ended up being close to a thousand pages that i turned in and they had to trim it down to 700 because it was just it, it was just took up yeah it would it couldn't take up shelf space i mean i don't know if you guys know this but when you when you write a book, they don't talk about it's not about the quality. Of, it is about the quality of the book and the subject matter, but what's more important is also the space it takes up on the shelf in these books uh, uh, bookstores. So what they are kind these, of in turn. Wait, hold on, John. What are these things that are called yeah. bookstores? What are, what are those? I I have no idea. You know, I think there's one or two left. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, yeah. So now yeah, it's no how kidding, much man. space it takes up on the Amazon shelf. That's it, right? Yeah. yeah. How many can they can shove into one corner? And <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a totally different. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, sales model when it came. You know, when Amazon came in. You know, just like okay, how does this work? You know, and it just kind of. Yeah, it does. It's just completely different uh, uh, outlook, you know. So, so yeah, <laughs> it was it was bizarre. It was very. I mean, I didn't even know about all that stuff. So it is about uh, centimeters or millimeters uh, of, of shelf space, and you know the publishers jock, end up jockeying for end cap space. You know, oh, uh, that's yeah. that's yeah, that's that's the whole thing about it, all this stuff. It's it's really interesting. Well, we'll get to your uh, stunt coordinator career yeah. in a little bit, but yeah. So when oh, so I was introduced to was, you, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's how I met you. Uh, yeah. What happened was, uh, I I was stunt coordinating, but the thing was, is it was hard for me to coordinate twelve to eighteen hours a day, and then come home and turn in a weekly report to these publishers. So I kind of put my coordinating for, for, for a little bit in the back burner because I needed to fulfill this contract or else, you know, I would have to, I'd be liable. So I ended up, I was like, all right, let me, let me just, I want to get this done. I, I feel it's something that I could, you know, contribute to the film industry and to filmmakers so they can understand what we do as, as, as uh, action designers. So I, so I just kind of, I said, all right, let's see what I can do to sustain me during the day. And then I ended up temping over at, at, at Disney there. And, and the guy that I ended up subbing because he was on vacation, it, it was, it was for distribution because international distribution, I under, I understood international distribution because of, you know, all the stuff that I've gone through. Um, and uh, when that person left, you know, uh, Olga called me up and said, Hey, you know, I need you to come in. I need you to come in almost a full-time basis. I said, okay, well, here's my issue. I, I'm, I'm on a contract to fulfill this, this book. And uh, there's going to be times where I'm going to have to leave. He goes, you know, I don't care. You, you do a good, you do a great job. You know what you're doing. As long as you answer the request, I'm, I'm cool. So she was very, very cool with, with, uh, with my uh, leave, my free leave program. So Olga, she comes down to my office. I'd been there about eight more months than you. And I was working on, of all things at Disney, the Roger Corman titles. And we can get into him and your uh, tenure with Mr. Corman later. Uh, And any of you youngins out there, just Google Roger Corman, one of the finest uh, trash filmmakers out there. He made some reputable stuff as well. He he yeah. deserves credit. Great producer, but um, a lot of trash cinema, a lot of low budget cinema, a lot of recycled right. cinema. Uh, we talk about right. him a lot on my other show, Six Degrees of Retro, here on the network. So <laughs> Olga comes down and goes, "There's this guy just like you, and all he does is want to talk about movies, movies, movies. You should go down and talk to him." And I said, "Okay," and I didn't know you, so I walk into the office yeah. and I go. Hey, you know, my name's Greg, and Olga said we should go to lunch sometime, and you come back, and the first thing you ever said to me was, well, you're not really my type, so, you know, I can't go. 
And I came back to you and I said, well, God, you know, I thought I had pretty good tits, but I guess not. And we both just started busting out laughing. And um, the other guy in the office, Paul, he's pretty straight laced. He's looking at us like, what's with these guys? <laughs> and a friendship was born. <laughs> that yeah. was it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember oh. that lunch. You you're telling me that you wanted to get into comedy. I mean, I didn't know you, you know, except for, you know, you'd walk by and just say, hey, how's it going? Da, da, you know, that was it. And then up to that point, I was like, oh, yeah. And then we just started talking. It's like, yeah, you know, if you want, I can help you out, you know. So that's how that all happened. <laughs> yeah, well, we were at Big Boy. Quickly. We were at Big Boy. Was it Big Boy? It was Big Boy. And at the time, you were having one of your famous uh, meatloaf sandwiches, and I was having one of my famous burgers and – you know, we were weight watching at the time. You know, Drew Carey was yeah, a few we tables were. Away. Yeah. You know, yeah, helping us out. Two guys in one booth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two guys, one booth, and too much food. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Thank God um, it wasn't a buffet. We'd be there. We'd be there for a couple hours. Yes, we would have. <laughs> yeah, I did bring it up to you, and then I'm like, no, no, but you know, I can't do this. And after a few conversations, you said something that was really key. You said. No, no, you have that kind of mind that you need that has a unique look at the world. You can make the, uh, you know, the left turns. And I'm like, what do you mean left turns? You're like, everybody thinks right turn. You think left turn. And comedians think left turn. And uh, that was pretty key in what you, in how you got me to um, get into it. And then you, uh, I mentioned a uh, comedy class that I had found online. You said, well, you should go take a class. And I asked you if you took any classes, and what was your answer? <laughs> no, there wasn't any when I started. Yeah. <laughs> That's how old I was. <laughs> no, but there wasn't any. And so you said no, there wasn't. you should fully take advantage of it since they exist. Yeah. So I go to yeah. Judy Carter's comedy class. You know, 12 people got to perform at the Hollywood Improv, first show I did. And, you know, got my five minutes down. But one of the um, earliest times I remember doing comedy, you know, actually on a stage, everybody was going out and doing, uh, in the class, we're doing uh, open mics together. And I was kind of being a loner, like I always was, you know, when it came to classes like that. So I, you're like, Greg, I'll take you out. Just pick one. So do you remember we went to this little coffee shop? Off of a uh, right. vine and sunset. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was yeah, so it was, it was, yeah nervous. Yeah, I remember. Oh my god! Yep. <laughs> you did really well. You did way, way better than I did when when I started. But yeah, it was just like you you had you the guy that would bring you up. He was also he also had like a portable keyboard there or something like that. So mm-hmm. you were bouncing off of him. So you had your little Ed McMahon going on there. <laughs> I did. I did. And yeah. it actually was very helpful. I learned a lot about that. He yeah. goes, you know that guy? He goes, you got to go back there and thank that guy because he made your act yeah. work. If it wasn't for him, yeah. you'd be screwed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, that's what a good host does is, and a good sidekick does. How was your first time coming up? Where was that? Oh, God. Um I, here's what happened. I was, uh, what led up to it was I was always looking 
for, I mean, I came from a traditional Asian family that, you know, wanted you to kind of be under the radar, just kind of just do your thing in life, just, you know, nose the grindstone, just move on and not, you know, just move on, make money and, and just have, just provide for yourself and your family. That's kind of the type of upbringing that I, that was expected of me. I was, they said, you know, my brothers and my mom expected me to become an engineer or a doctor or, or something like that. And I was like, no, I, I knew right away when they said that, just like I, in my, in my mind, I was like laughing, like, yeah, right. That's, that's so not me. So, uh, I, I was always, uh, drawn to, uh, creative lifestyle, you know, finding ways to express yourself and make a living off of it was, was something I thought was just so cool, you know? So, um, I was trying to find my way, you know, uh, before that I was, I was teaching martial arts. I felt that was like my, the, the only thing I knew in life that, that I was very passionate about. And when I got injured, I couldn't do anymore. I had to figure something out. So I went back to college. I became, well, I was an English major one semester, uh, uh, sociology major, another uh, computer science major. <laughs> and finally, you know, uh, the Guidance counselor said something like me. He goes, "Hey, look, uh, you're you're about to graduate. You know, why don't you, why don't you, you got you got to, You didn't do your electives. You did everything you need, but we need electives. You actually need to do a full semester of electives." I was like, "Going, oh crap! All right, so I go, what can I do?" He goes, "You can do anything you want except the major you decided." I was like, "Okay," and he started naming things. You could do this. You did. He goes, "Take drawing classes." I was like, "Drawing classes, really?" they teach you how to draw? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he kind of broke it down. And I said, all right, well, what do I have to do? He goes, you take this class. I go, okay. Then I still had some computer science classes that I needed to do to graduate. And uh, so what happened was he, he just told me, he says, I go, so what does somebody do to get this type of a degree? And he started explaining what the art, art uh, program was like. And I was like, oh, do I need to take this? Yeah. And next thing you know, within... 10, 15 minutes, I became an art major. And the guy goes, you're, you're just totally, you're about to graduate. You're about to get work. And you're totally throwing this out the window. I said, yeah, this yeah is, wait a minute. This John, feels right. John, now wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. I think you went about this the wrong way because all I heard you had to do was draw a turtle. And then you were in <laughs> art class. So I think you spent way too much money and time because I, Aren't those, remember back then, all you had to do was draw a turtle head, and you could get into yeah, art school. Or a deer. Right? Or a bambi. Oh, a deer, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I think the Sorry turtle to interrupt was, was there, story, too. Man, you know. No, 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 that's cool. No, so then here's what happened. I became an art major. And, you know, I got very, what do you call it? I mean, first first year was really rough because you had to, you know, really break down the principles and really, really become a student of 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 the medium. So I really busted my ass. And then what happened was the second, you know, the 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 second third year. What happens is, um, it's more lab work. So you're able to kind of you you just show the teacher your work and then you move on. Then you then you go home and you do your stuff. So. During those times, I'd sit there and wait for the teacher to come look at my work. I'd sit there and start busting jokes. And I started 
you know, holding court in class and in the cafeteria during those times. And um, my, my, my teacher, my counselor, essentially told me, he goes, I need to talk to you after class. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, okay, I'm in for it. And I thought he was going to, like, totally reprimand me. And he goes, look, because uh, you got to do something with that because you're, you're totally wasting it on my class. <laughs> I was like, what wow. He goes, you got somewhat of a gift. You got to do this. And he's, he was a mentor to me up to the day he passed, you know, a few years back. Um, he's always been by my corner and all this stuff, you know. Uh, so what happened was, uh, and his son is, is uh, I'll talk to you about that later, but his son is, is, is still, I'm still friends with him. He's a member of this band called Kicks. Oh, yeah. Um, Metal band from the yeah. 80s. Love Kicks. Oh, hell right. yeah. 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 <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're actually uh, collaborating on a project coming up soon. But, yeah, I'll talk to you about that later. But, yeah, so what happened was uh, – Oh, you're taking up the bass again, huh? All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what happened was he just says, you got to do this. And he took out this, uh, this this ad in the newspaper. He goes, look, open mics Thursday night. Do, go there. Just – try it out get it out of your system if it's not for you but you know i knew right away i, I mean here's the thing i did not i was still trepid trepid about it in the beginning because i was like you know what i'm not able to really express myself fully with this like i could with art and um and i and i didn't think much about it and then what happened was uh i think about six months later i got transferred up to parsons school of design up in new york city mm-hmm. and um and Billy Crystal was performing at the bottom line in the Greenwich Village. Oh, wow. And like, this is when You Look Marvelous was popular. Mm-hmm. And I think he was, yeah, he was working on his, his live album. He did three hours. Damn. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, holy crap. Because that caught the, la- the late show. I didn't catch the first show. He did a first show, then he did a late show. And he totally went at it. I was like, oh, my God. And then when I saw it, I was like, you know what? This is something I got to do. I, I right then I I knew right away. I was like, I I got bit by the bug, and then I, you know, and then, you know, then it reminded me of what I. It kind of lightning bolt in my head about watching Richard Pryor with that Long Beach Live in concert. I was like, uh-huh. yeah, there is a lot of soul, a lot of depth with uh, with 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 expressing yourself through comedy. It's not just, you know, uh, senseless. Uh, punchlines here and there. Hey, me. I was, uh, so that's that's what I that's what I thought about. That's what kind of that was like the awakening that I had. My first uh, impression of comedy also is Richard Pryor. My uh, yeah. late father James would take of all of all times. My parents were pretty damn notorious for taking us to see movies at way too young of an age. So we got to see Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip, probably whatever year it came out. So probably about age like 12. Yeah. <laughs> and there I am watching Mudbone talk about pussy. And I'm like, rub the pushy on your face. You're the sun on, the, you know, rubber knee and the legs will come open. I'm like, what? what what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, your dad's laughing his ass off. <laughs> oh yeah, and my mom's. My here's the worst part, you know. My mom, not worse, but great. My mom was pretty uh, tame, so she uh, she wasn't understanding the jokes either. And it was funny. I remember going to my mother afterwards. I go, "What was going on in that part?" And she goes, "I don't know either. Ask your father." 
I had no clue. And neither did she. And neither did my sister. My sister's got her head down. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but yeah, seeing that at a young age and then watching a lot of stuff on cable, like David Brenner and a lot of the early comedians oh, yeah. on Showtime, especially and on HBO. And of course, the thing that really solidified me was watching Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian Special. Oh, yeah. And it was an oh, yeah. all-star year where Sam Kinison was on there and all the other big guys were on there. What was the guy that did oh, the yeah. football act? Do you remember? Bob Nelson. Bob Nelson. Yeah, Bob Nelson. So there's Bob yeah. Nelson. There's Sam Kinison. There's uh, right. everybody on that damn thing. And you're just yeah. like... Bob oh my Saget God. was on there. Oh, Bob yeah. Saget. And Everybody. another friend of mine, uh, 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 Lenny Clark was in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. It's, it's dice. Yeah. It's yeah. Just yeah. One right time. after the other. And I, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a wise ass. Maybe one day I'll do this. And then it was always <laughs> joked about with every girlfriend in high school. You should do stand-up comedy. I'm like, oh, no, I'm too nervous up on stage. Forget that. You know, I'll just be funny. And I mean, you were the first person that took me seriously and you were like, no, take a class, do it. And then my moment that I had in L.A. was actually that night I went out with you. Doing it in class was kind of robotic. We were just kind of reciting it for our students, you know, fellow students. And then when I got there and I had that interaction with my Ed McMahon and (laughs) it was only to like eight people. But I remember coming off and I said, John, I don't remember half of what I said. And he goes, you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was yeah, having an out of body experience. Like that. Oh, yeah. Your first time is yeah. always like oh. that. Yeah. 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 yeah it was a rush. You're just like, yeah, what, what, what just happened? What did I just do? Yeah. It's kind of like mm-hmm. uh best way I could uh, describe this is uh, when you first get into a, when you first enter your first martial arts tournament or your professional fight, a lot of stuff you don't remember because you just kind of, you, you just kind of go on automatic, you know, mm-hmm. you got to train enough to get to that point where, where the, the, the foundation is, is there. So you don't have to freak out. You know, you're, when, if you freak out, you can rely on your foundation, but yeah, it's, 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 it's like that with anything anything you do creatively that you, uh, where you're expressing yourself. I, I, that's the common thing that, that, that happens. Cause I, you know, everybody goes, well, how do you, why do you, it's such a drastic jump from martial arts to stand up. I go, no, it's the same thing, man. It's, you know, you're, you're making your opponent or the audience think one way and then you nail them with something else that they don't expect coming. Mm-hmm. That's just the that's it's it's common. There's a lot of more commonalities than there are differences. It's, so are you setting, saying that Chuck, Nor- the, Chuck, 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 Norris Chuck Norris was a good comedian to you, from the story you yeah. told me, right? <laughs> you got to oh, yeah. tell the Chuck Norris story, <laughs> real quick. Come on. Which one? The one where he knocked you in your butt. <laughs> oh he? yeah, I just he, you know he. He decided he, it was what happened was he decided to, uh, you know, I asked him, hey, can we go at it? And he goes, yeah, sure. So we went to the school and schooled me. He actually schooled yeah. me. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I learned a heck of a lot from that. I, it was, it was, uh, he did these things that I never even imagined uh, it possible because I wasn't 
you know, at that time I did not understand certain principles. And then, you know, when I saw what he did, I was like, Oh man, okay, this is, this is it. You know? So that it was, it was, yeah, I, I was, I was humiliated, but you know, it was, it was, uh, it was great. I learned so much. It's just like, it's just like when you're up on stage, you know, you have a bad night, you learn from it. You don't learn from your, from your uh, killer nights. You, you, you know, you learn from your from the nights where you just kind of, you know, drag your face on the gravel. <laughs> well, I what you're saying is very similar to what I did. So I graduate. They give you that one gig at the Hollywood Improv, and then oh, yeah. of course there's these bookers with bringer shows, and they're like, "Oh yeah, right. come. We think you're the we think you're funny as fuck. Please come do our show." And you're like, "Oh God, I'm funny as hell." And they're like, but but yeah. you gotta bring ten people, okay? But you know that's yeah. how it works here in L.A. Unfortunately, so right. I do those shows, and the ones at the comedy store actually were good. The bookers were smart. They have a few amateurs like us go on the under six month people, and then they'd actually bring up like Miles Jabrani or Ahmed Ahmed or you know a lot of the comedians that were you know coming up and it was like that's when I learned not when I was out in the valley and the booker would do what I called the death march there were like 10 (laughs) comedians we all sucked we're all horrible and I remember my worst night out there was I'm like number five thinking I'm in a prime spot oh this is great the energy is gonna be great I'm so psyched and the number four guy goes up there and does an entire bit about suicide and how he's going to kill himself. No, <laughs> no jokes, no jokes. And he's just like, you know, I just want to kill myself. Uh, this happened to me and that happened to me. Oh, I just want to die. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I had my like big lesson of trying to bring a room back up. And of course I failed horribly. <laughs> oh God. Okay. You want to hear But my, at the comedy they, store, they at them, the comedy store, you had a yeah. chance. You had a chance because they'd put a few pros in there and say, we're like, oh, okay, can ride a wave off of yeah. that. Um, right, right. Yeah. Oh, God. You want to hear my yeah. death spots? Okay. Well, yeah. When, when I, I was, was going to say, well, you, now you came up through the regular system at the comedy store. I was doing bringer shows there. You actually paid your dues and talk about that and then tell us about a few of your bad gigs. Oh God. Okay. Um, how do you? Be, how did you? How do you become a person at the comedy store in the eighties, basically? Okay. Here's what happened. I you had to audition for Mitzi. You were only given three minutes. A lot of people go three minutes. That's that's not much. I go. It's a, it's enough. It's enough for you to to show Mitzi and the crowd uh, your personality. You know, mm-hmm. I've seen her take people that were not funny, but had a, but had the courage to be unique or different. And she would take chances on on you if you, if you if you showed some type of promise like that. I mean, but if you're funny, still she would, you know, she would she she'd snatch you up depending on what type of humor you did. Um, she didn't like any generic comedians, so she she always liked the ones that were kind of edgy that had a unique uh, what do you call a uh, and you just a unique point of point view. Point of view. So the first, point of view. Yeah. 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 So uh, so the first time I auditioned, I got to, oh 
first night I went to the comedy store, um, it was my first week here in L.A. I went there just to watch, just to see what I would be up against. And there were these guys I, that I would become friends with and, and become comrades with, and I was like going, holy crap. Yeah, guys that you wouldn't know, but the main people that you that the audience would know were um, uh, Roseanne, Louis Anderson. Um, uh, uh, God, who else? Uh, well, yeah, uh, Roseanne, Roseanne had her famous uh, breakout there where she was the first woman to play oh, yeah. all three rooms in one night, right? And, Roseanne Barr. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, she – I remember I would be answering. I'd be, you know, when when I first got to the store, you would, you know, if if you weren't already established or anything like that, you would have to kind of work your way up. So I, what I did was I answered phones, cars in the back, just so I can learn the business. So I would sit down, I'd write every night, just with a notepad, and you know, and I got a lot of encouragement from a lot of the comedians because a lot of some of the comedians they they never they kind of just. To just try to be cool or whatever, but I'd sit there with my notepad. I'd just be working my ass off. And like, I remember guys like Belzer were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm writing. And I'm trying to write. And he goes, oh, keep it up, man. Keep it up. You know, and I was like, wow. You know, same as Louie and, and Roseanne was the same way too. You know, because in the beginning, you know, it's you're the new guy. They think, oh, he's stealing. He's stealing. And everybody's, no, he's not. He's not. He's not stealing. So, so yeah, that's how that kind of went. You know, and they were always, pretty supportive so what happened was uh that's what you did so i did for about a year you know i was a doorman i was i parked cars in the back and i'd answer phones during the day and you just learned a business you learn how things work um and i was there almost every night just just trying to soak things in and it was it was it was like rock and roll back then i mean i was there when richard Pryor came back and and he did he was he he came back. He hasn't been he wasn't on for like I don't know maybe three four years. And he came back. And I remember the night he showed up to to talk to Mitzi up in the belly room. And she showed up and he he showed up and she's sitting there watching some of the comedians and and uh, she, she he goes hey and she goes and Mitzi looked at him and said he goes how are you he goes he goes I'm good I'm good I'm I'm doing really good I I, I want to come back. <laughs> and she goes, of course, whenever you want. She goes, so what do I? And here's Richard goes, so what do I have to do? Do I have to call in on Mondays like everybody else? I just want to know the schedule so I can follow what 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 needs to happen. She goes, and she started laughing. She goes, are you kidding me? You helped build this club because you can <laughs> you can go on whenever the hell you want. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. I'll just, I'll do it just like everybody else. That's awesome. Goes, no, 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 no. No, no, you, you, you're rich. You, you're rich. You can go whenever, whenever, whenever you want. Uh-huh. So just tell, tell the guy who, who was a town coordinator that you're back, and he'll put you on when you need to be on. God, that's okay. awesome. I have, I have two things for you, John. So first, I just unfortunately on these podcasts. I have to. I feel like I have to explain things to the new generation. Mitzi is Mitzi sure. Shore, who everybody knows. Pauly Shore from the '90s in the Army Now, son-in-law, Encino Man. His mother <laughs> and father both started the comedy store, and uh, right, he, he had a part yeah. in it in the beginning, right? And then she just took yeah, it over. It was, yeah, she took it over. Yeah, when he was on the road opening for Elvis. She took mm-hmm. over. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and essentially, and if anybody saw was, that, go on. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Essentially, when you know he, he would go on the road more and more, and she ended up being the town coordinator manager, and she and worked the booth, and she did everything in that club. It yeah. was just the OR back then. It was not the main room or the belly room. It was just the OR. So yeah, basically, if you if you want a primer in this that is slightly based on it, but based enough on it because Jim Carrey actually produced it and modeled it after the comedy store is the showtime show that was on. You can go watch the back episodes. I'm dying up here. That's what it was called. Right. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. And it was very authentic to the rhythm back then. Yeah. It was, it was based off a book on the history of the comedy store. It's called I'm dying up here. I think that's what the name of it, but yeah. Yes. So I have another treat for you. You had me pull a bunch of clips, but I have a good clip that I found that was done at the anniversary of the comedy store of Richard Pryor after he came back, after he set himself on fire. So let's take a breather and listen to it. What do you think? Uh, Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you. I don't know what that means. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah! Sounds like like what they used to uh, holler down south many years ago before <laughs> before they'd lynch one of us. I don't know what uh, to say to you. You know, I mean, I see you here. You all look beautiful, and I'm sober. And it's still a strange feeling uh, being sober because I got nothing to do tonight but go to sleep. <laughs> and I've been doing this, and it's really exciting because I go to the therapist, you know, and I go see him and I talk to him, you know, uh, how do you feel? And I, say, I feel like breaking your fucking face. <laughs> like to pull your fucking guts out. Stop on it, okay? Uh, that's fine. <laughs> I know the world is different because people tell me the world is different. I was in the hospital and I was thinking about when I was in about three years ago, I burned myself up in there dying or whatever. And I got religious and shit. I used to say, God, please. All right, I couldn't talk that well, you know. It was more like, And people would send me weird cards, you know. <clears throat> people from all over the world, all kind of people. That's what messed me up. It changed my shit, because I'm real prejudiced, you know. And it changed my, it changed something to me, because they would send you weird cards like, hey, look, we don't necessarily like what you do. We don't think because you burned up, you should die. <laughs> I went to Africa, man, and I was real fun in Africa being with black people who were different black people. You know, I was, I asked the African man, I asked him, said, what tribe do I look like I came from? And he told me, Italian. He still had it, man. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, You know, it's, um, he's, 
a lot of a lot of comedians just just still revere him and what he's what he's done and how he how he did things and how he was so brutally honest with what he had to say there you know i mean i i was very fortunate when i was there to see him and now also he kind of he saw my act and he broke it down for me and i was just like oh my god he sat down with me in front of the uh, the patio from patio at the comedy store and he says says son i saw your i saw your stuff and i felt your pain and i was like wow he goes this is you're on it you're on it i just want to let you know you're on it and uh, this is, I got some things I want to pass on to you. And he just gave me some real valuable stuff on tips on on my act and what I needed to do to, to just tune it up. And, you know, and he just would just give me these words of wisdom. I sat there. I mean, that was, it was very surreal. Here I am sitting there talking to him, you know, just like I am with you. And he's just like, this is what you need. Da da da. Try this. Try that. Da da da. This is what I would do if I was in that situation. I'm like, oh my god. And meanwhile, as he's saying all this stuff, I'm taking this all in, and I'm thinking about how big of a part of my life he's been ever since I was a kid watching him. And I was like, oh my god. And and then, you know, he would he would kind of every time he'd see me off get off stage or something, he'd kind of look at me and just kind of nod and like give me a thumbs up. You know, like he goes, you're on it. You're on it. I'm like, wow. You know, it's just, I, 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 you know, that experience that I've had with him was just, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, when that's he, when incredible. He to me, I, was like, I, I can go, I, I can die and go to heaven right now. This is, this oh, yeah. Is <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to one up you because yours is way beyond mine, but just a big tip out there to everybody. Being a comedian and all the comedians, it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. It's there we're all it's like you're part of a club. Unless you're a complete asshole, completely full of yourself and you're a total loner and you're one of these jagoffs that goes, "Oh, I got to go up and kill every night and you all suck and you're not when I used to do my bringer shows, I'd walk up to everybody, I'd shake their hand and I learned just to go, "Hey, we're all in this together." Let's all do well and let's have a good time. And I'd get these strange looks, but some of the people got it and they were like, you know, yeah, let's all, if if we all do good, we're all going to have a great show. And I learned that and I learned always approach, you know, comedians, if they're accessible, you know, don't harass them. But if they're on, you know, they just went up and they would put a pro up there on our show, you know, they're sitting there, talk to him, be like, hey, man, how's it going? You know, and just be personable. I, my story, I got lucky. Uh, Joan Rivers, God rest her soul, did a show at the Catalina Jazz Club over here in Hollywood oh. about two years before she passed away. And it was like 75 bucks. I didn't care. I'm like, I'm going to see Joan Rivers at a small club before I die. So I go yeah. and I waited I saw all these, you know, older people, they're waiting in line, getting their autographs. She's being all, you know, very generous with her time. And I just waited for them all to clear. And I made sure I was the last one in line. And she's like, what do you want? You know, (laughs) she was still on. (laughs) And I said, and I explained to her, I go, you know, I'm a young, I'm, I'm, I'm an older, you know, but newcomer, newcomer comedian. I'm just, you know, 
would like to, you know, talk to you about some things and just honestly. And she goes, I'm going to go freshen up for 10 minutes. You wait. I'll come out and talk to you. And she talked to me, John, for 15 minutes. And it was awesome. like changing. She's just yeah. like, what do you do? That's- she was very, very interested. And she's like, you know, I had many people that talked to me, you know, the way I'm talking to you, just listen. I listen yeah. to them. Listen. Because <laughs> I know. Don't be a wise ass. Don't be like foo-foo. Like, I'm giving you valuable information yeah. here. And I'm like, of course, you're Joan Rivers, you know. And yeah. you got it from yeah. Richard. That's, that's the, you know, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she – Joan was awesome too. I mean, I when she I I go see her show, uh, her her uh, TV show down at Fox. Um, when I first moved out here, you you got you know, you you were able to go in for free and stuff. And I sat one time and I thought maybe I can get time with her too. And and in between in between breaks, she'd come up and shake our all hands. I go, Joan, I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah, got any advice? And she yeah, she did the same. She didn't give me 15 minutes, but she gave me like a minute and says, just keep at it. Keep at it. Don't, you know, don't tell anybody, don't let anybody say you can't, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta, you got well, you know, yeah. She's, she's well, John, awesome. you didn't stalk her like I did and scare the crap out of her and wait till everybody left. You know, I kind of <laughs> creeped on her a little bit. So, you know, you had all these people around, so she had to be cool. But like with me, she figured I got to give this idiot 15 minutes so he'll leave. So yeah, <laughs> that's awesome though. I mean, she's, you know, I it, it's it's how you approach people. That's it's really important. I mean, you know, we all we get into this business because we have some insecurities or, or this hole that we need to fill. And the whole thing is, you got to understand what that hole is and know that this business is not going to fill that hole. You know, you got to do your own self work and understand that that drive you to to places that normal people normal people who don't have these type of issues would not venture out this far but just know that there's a point there's a point where it stops you just gotta yeah because yeah a lot of people are just so insecure that they're on they're always on i'm like really come on but you make a great point i mean you have to listen to people and i mean the big thing is to have mentors you do have yes. to approach people that have been doing this for decades and yes. they're more than willing to talk to you. The good ones, you know, 80% of them, there's a the 20% that are, you know, full of themselves and worried about their cars and their yachts and, you know, getting home <laughs> to their, you know, wife, you know, their trophy wife, but there's the ones that are like, you know, Hey, yeah, no, I'll sit down with you for five minutes and tell you the, what happened to me and what's the real side of the industry to me. Right. And I mean, yeah. you got that firsthand at the comedy store. Um, one of my other um, people that I looked up to and I have a clip of that I want to play from uh, the uh, comedy store days, but as a lead up to it, we were talking previously to this. Um, so you got, really big at the comedy store you have your name on the wall and you guys were rock stars in the 80s i mean comedy was huge and lines down the block and it got that way lately before covid hit and with your joe rogan's and your uh burke kreischer's but back then i mean there was kinnison 
There was Dice. Yeah. There was, right. you know, how many other rock stars were your uh, fellow rock stars over there at the comedy store? You know, and tell me oh. about the scene that was going on there. Oh, geez. Every night was, I mean, during the week it was sold out. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was lines going out the door. I mean, it was just, it was, it was crazy. And celebrities that you, that you grew up or, or current stars that you, that you respect or, you know, whatever would show up and you're just looking at them. They're looking at you, you know, like, wow, you're, you're the shit. And I'm like, I never understood why, you know, and, and then looking, looking back on it, I understand why, because, you know, rock went corporate, you know, with the power ballads and all that other stuff. And, and, and stand up was the only, was the only way you could freely express yourself uh, with what was going on. And, and, and the audience felt that then you said stuff and and they felt that. I remember, um, God, uh, I remember Des Miller telling me, he goes, look, the reason he goes, the reason we do this is because we can't play a musical instrument and we want to sing the blues. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Unfortunately, <laughs> no, you're right. Unfortunately, there are a few comedians I've had tried to become musicians and we know how that works out. <laughs> one of them is from the, uh, one of the clips I'm going to play. You got Dane Cook all of a sudden, you know, oh man, I'm going to cut a rock song. I mean, the only oh, comedian wow. that did it successfully was Eddie Murphy. Let's give him credit. You know, party all the time. Come on. You know. Yeah, yeah. He had Rick James. He had Rick James on his, you know, in that, in that booth for him, man. That's, you know. <laughs> Rick James, cocaine, and about six women, right? Yeah. That right, helped out go. that song a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, wait. Okay, let's backtrack for a minute since I brought up Betty Murphy. Tell me a little bit about Eddie Murphy's comeback compared to Richard Pryor's comeback. Do you mind talking about that? Okay, come back when? When are we talking about? Are you talking about We're after, talking right about... After, uh, after Raw, at the, when I saw it at the store? Yeah. Um, let's, let me recall this. Um, you said he wasn't very relatable to the audience because right. he, he right. tried writing his own material instead of having uh, Mooney and his usual you know team writing Clint, for him. Clint. Yeah. Clint Smith was his main guy. Um, I remember what happened was, um, yeah, he was getting up there, and I remember he talked about the birth of his child in, in, in detail, and you're like going, "Oh wow, okay, this is <laughs> this is not cool." And then afterwards, he kind of he was getting frustrated, and he said, "What am I not doing?" And, and we just said, "Look, you you, you gotta you, you you gotta relate to the audience. I mean, people people don't don't understand." They they can't relate because they're they're making just above minimum wage or or just enough to to take care of themselves and their family. When here you're you you know you're good. You know it sucks when everybody else is making millions. I only make a one million dollar a year uh, one billion one million dollar picture contract stuff like that. You know and now he's like oh geez I wish I had a million dollars that type of stuff. You know his he, you know because if you think about it he was he made it big when he was eighteen. So his his version of reality is completely different than than the people in the audience. Yeah, so, I wanted to bring so, that up because on Netflix lately, 
have you happened to see the latest Jerry Seinfeld one on there? No, I haven't. So he, of course, gets popular with comedians and cars with coffee. And then everybody sees his lifestyle. And he talks about, you know, I don't like being at home with my wife and my kids. You know, I like my cars and all this, you know, very much like uh, Jay Leno and he came up on his latest special and he starts to try and relate to people. And um, first of all, they fly him in on a helicopter and all that crap. And then he starts talking about his money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he starts talking about his money issues. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like, dude, you're really saying this in the Netflix crowd. Um, Everybody's buying, you know, paying how much for Netflix and, Here's you, you know, barely paying for Netflix now with the present situation in the world. And they drop his special. And as soon as I saw that, I thought of when you told me about Eddie Murphy getting up there after he did Raw and had all the money and goes, oh, man, you know, I want to come back to the store. And you said people paid like, you know, 50 bucks to get in for great seats. And all he wants to talk about is how rich he is. And like, well, yeah. I just spent like my whole week's salary to come see your ass, you know, including drinks. Right. So. Right. <laughs> and yeah. you said that yeah. everybody here's, 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 pretty pissed. You know, I, here's, here's the, uh, the fighter analogy again. You know, if you look at this, look at Rocky three, you know, Rocky got famous and, and he started living, living life. He didn't have to fight anymore. So he kind of got real lackadaisical about training is more about, being with people and and not not the not the 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 working the craft, you know you mm-hmm. you work the craft, but it's not like the way it used to be when you were hungry and still living in a in a in a cracker box, you know, uh, trying to trying to break open, you know, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's you know you got you gotta you somehow still have to have that quote unquote eye of the tiger, even though yeah. you are making millions. It's, it's it, and it's hard. It's hard because your 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 view of reality changes dramatically. You know, you don't have to go up on stage and make fifty dollars a night. Uh, you know, and jockeying for other positions at other clubs so you can pay your rent. You don't that that edge is gone now that you've yeah. got you know gotten all this. You know, you're you're making residuals off the shows you you've you've accumulated in the past. 20 something years and, and stuff like that. It, it's, it's a different type of struggle. And yeah. the whole thing is trying to keep that objective point of view. And that's the hard part about it. Everybody, I mean, everybody that's happened that way is, is happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's trying to still relate, even though you are godly famous at what you're doing. And here's the thing, you know, you're given when you go up on stage, you're given a little bit more time than than a normal club comic to to make them laugh or 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 win them on your side. But if you don't, you know, they'll 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 walk out. Yeah. You know, or they'll just like sit there and just like yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Let me play a card. Let's let's yeah. uh oh I, I I well and not to be a downer and I'm just going to say one quick thing about this. And it was very interesting on Joe Rogan's podcast and on uh, Joey Diaz's podcast. They both said this because they make good money. 
they're both huge at the comedy store and they both were huge touring comics. And we of course live in the world of you can't be a touring comedian right now. And you're used to making door money. And right. It's, they both said the same thing. They said, we're all equal now. Yeah, sure. We have our fortunes and we've made our money and we have our decent houses, but we can't make any money now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not what we're used to. So right. the playing field has been leveled pretty hard lately. <laughs> and uh, I just thought it was pretty, you know, we're talking about, you know, excess back then. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's gotten pretty excessive lately with your Joe Rogans and your Burke Kreischers and your Joey Diaz's. They're all making, you know, they're their little crowd. They're making their good money. And they're able to sell out theaters, you know, and you know, um, you know, hundred dollars a seat, and now there are no hundred dollar seats to fill, so right. it's just right. interesting. But on a up note, let's play. <laughs> this is your life, and this is a <laughs> clip. I don't know how good the sound quality is going to be on this, but it's one of the comedians that made me want to do comedy and who I saw in Chicago at Zany's and changed my life. And uh, he's one of the people you told me, John, when you had to go up after him, you were fucked, basically. Oh, <laughs> so God, I think you know who it is. Well, this is, <laughs> okay. this is, this is probably the worst one uh, because it was usually bedlam in the house. And this is him at the comedy store La Jolla back in the day. So Let's see if I can okay. get the audio to go good on this. Hey, all right. Well, this is gonna be worth it, folks. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to do the show right, but I. Uh, I think I did too much. Oh, I did too much. really raw on it. I'm sorry about that everybody, but I think you know who it is, John. Uh let's see, it's um God, uh some <laughs> generic comedian. Uh, yeah, you know, there's so many people I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Kennison. God. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he goes on to do his famous look it up and the audio will be a lot better anywhere else. Everybody on YouTube, just type in uh Jesus bit you know, Sam Kinison, you know, cross, piano, you know, it'll come up. <laughs> you know, I I have uh an I have several experiences, but this is probably one, you know, I think you know, your your audience could take away from that that I still think about to this day. You know, when I'm in a certain situation. Um 
I was I was working the phones upstairs at the office at the comedy store, and I was supposed to inter- I was supposed to audition later that night at the store for Star Search, the original Star Search when Ed, Ed McMahon was on. So I was like, I was nervous. I was nervous as all hell because it was one of my first big auditions that I had for a, a major TV show. So, so everybody, you know, all the comedians at the store were trying to get in too. So, so I was on that lineup to audition uh, uh, that night at the store. So Sam comes in. He, you know, every time he goes on to say hi, and this is during the day, you know, he's just sitting there, hey man, how's it going? I'm like going, uh, he goes, what's wrong? What's wrong, man? What's wrong, buddy? I said, oh, geez, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I'm auditioning for Star Search. I know it doesn't mean anything for you. You just, you just did a, what was it? He did like 60 cities in within two months. Just sold out every every arena back then. And and then he, you know, he just had his HBO special. And I was like, it's nothing for you. You just got back from 60 cities, and and now you're and you just had your HBO special. So it's no big deal for you. I mean, it's a big deal for me. And he looked at me. He goes, Hey let me tell you something. And he kind of looked me straight in the eye. He goes, look, he goes, let me tell you, this is, this is really important. Those shows need you more than you need them. I'm like, what? Goes, I, I kind of looked at him like, are you kidding me? He goes, no, nah. because I was about, I was like, looking at him like, you're on, you're on drugs, which you probably was, but still, that's besides the point. He said, he goes, look, let me tell you something. These people are hired to look for talent like you. You can go on and go on another show. You can work your stuff and keep moving on. Whereas this guy is dependent on you. They, they are the they're the people that are looking for the talent. You have to understand you are in the control. You're in the driver's seat. You know how you do that night to you and the audience and you know the universe. However you want to say this. And 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 it's like okay. He goes he goes here's the thing. You know you got to remember, it's they need you more than you need them. So don't give them the power over you. And I said, oh, okay. And then he goes, all right, man. He gave me a big hug. And he goes, all right, I, I, I got to go. I'll see you later at night. And he looked at me and he walked down to the end of the hall. And he goes, fucking John, don't take no fucking prisoners, all right? And he just <laughs> yelled like the way he did. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, true. Wow. wow, it's totally yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, yeah. you're only as valuable as you make yourself, and you have to exactly. make yourself valuable, and you have to have pride in your work. Is, right, right. The whole thing is the show has a, you know each show has a certain model of what they're looking for, but the but you know Sam is a perfect example of that. He, you know he he the show started bending over to him. They, they eventually came to him instead of him coming to them. They came to him, which is what he meant by that. I mean, he took much longer than the rest of the comedians to make it because he was on the edge. He was completely on the edge. He was something different and people, it took a while for, for the, for the suits, the execs to kind of understand what was going on. Oh, it's always that way. So the whole thing is be patient, you know, know your voice and just be, you know, be true to it. You know, Sam is a perfect example of that. You know, I mean, now let's, let's segue with that. 
back in your day, it was mostly uh-huh. white male comedians, white male comedians. A lot of set up, punchline, quick stuff. Right. An African-American, yeah. and that was pretty much it. You were – you had a unique spot. Being an Asian comedian, was it easier because you had a unique voice, or was it harder because – of the state of the world then? It was a little bit of both. It was half and half. I mean, look, I wasn't the only one there. There was Charlie Laporte and there was Tamayo Otsuki. Um, and we all had our, all three of us had a different, different um, take on, on comedy. Um, so the thing was, is um, it was hard, but it was, you, 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 you got attention quickly, but then again, it, that, that, doors sometimes would close because you weren't um you weren't the you, you didn't you know we all three of us we never played to the stereotype so you had to go out and figure out how how you're going to make this work and you you kind of when you meet these people you you know when it comes to the shows or or even even another booker from a for another club they would kind of they look at you you, you kind of it's that Hmm, I don't know. How am I going to fit? How's this guy going to fit into this? I mean, I, I, I was also a regular at, over at Digby's. Um, when I first got here, I was Jan Smith, who now runs, I think he still runs, the, the Ice House. He was the booker. He, he was a booker at the Ice House. He, he ended up creating his own club in, in West LA called Igby's. And it was kind of like, um, yeah, here's the other thing. Back then, there was politics between the two major clubs, the improv and the comedy store. Um, you you couldn't play one or the other unless the the owners needed you more than you needed them. Yeah, uh, you know, there's some comedians that got away with it, but a lot of us couldn't. So Igby's was a was a neutral ground where all of us kind of met, and I was a regular at that club there um, before I even got to the comedy store. So. Um, so you know, sometimes you 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 get you get people that would just kind of like, oh no, we're we're not into that, you know. So, uh, and certain shows were like that with me, you know, where I would where I, I mean I I was constantly putting out my my VHS tapes of my routine of, of my standup, and they would it was just I'd get these. You know, and they get no answers. So, and finally, you know, Rick Dees was the first guy to to call. Rick, into the night, Rick Dees was the first guy to 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 take the chance on me. And I, yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, I saw him about five years ago at a at a show at the Universal Amphitheater, and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but you gave me my first shot. And he goes, Oh, you know, we started talking. And I said, You know, because of you all these other shows started opening up to me and I, and I thank from the bottom of my heart because you, you know, because of that, you, you helped, you helped give me a career. That's awesome. I want to bring up yeah. a strange, yeah. I want to bring up something strange that you might not like, but I'm bringing it up for a reason because I know this <laughs> about you and you're having a great time doing stand up. Everything's going well. We're going to play your clip from MTV. Uh, and oh, God. <laughs> unfortunately, when you're hot like you were, you're offered movies. And you did a movie back then. 
Oh, God. (laughs) If you Google it, people are going to find you anyway. But I just want you to talk to, from a professional point of view, from people coming up, from comedians, when Hollywood comes calling, like it did to you, it was a movie (laughs) called Glitch. And John's not, you know, proud of it. Of course not. You watch it. But this was back in the excessive 80s where sex comedies were made every week in every producer's house. And John was in a movie that I like to call a producer's house movie. It was obviously the producer's house. They came up with some horrible script. It's a bunch of half-naked women walking around. It's a really shitty plot, and it would end up running at the drive-in. And John's in it, but you got paid halfway decent, right? And then it was a you oh know, yeah, I got paid it, very well for it. I got, he got paid very, very well, well not a flattering role, but no, it you know, but what do you have to say to people that you know have to, you know, you you you. you you pick the cash to pay the rent, but in hindsight, I mean, what's, what's your feeling on the whole thing? Well, here's the thing. I, um, I was very naive at the time. I, you know, it's just like you, you kind of did what you had to do to right. survive. So that's what I did. Um, I got that job through my agent, um, it, it, it was what it was. I I ended up getting, I get I end up getting some notoriety from it, uh, for, you know. Uh, and then what happened was, you know, it's here's the hard part about this town. They've got to see if you can play the game in order for them to, to for you to for you to be a part of their game, you know. And that's kind of how it went back then. I know it's different now. People actors have much more control over uh over over the medium more than they did back then. Back then you were kinda like, all right, do you want this or not? Somebody else is gonna well, John, take it. Just let me interrupt yeah. for the record, this film would never be made now. Not in a million years. No, it would you know no, no, very sexist, no, very racist, very eighties, yes. unfortunately. So, you know <laughs> that's it was a bit, it was a bit, People would make a different choice now, I think, than you were kind of forced to, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was all that was out there. That's the reality. Exactly, of it. exactly. But I kind of wanted to bring it up as a lesson to people now, you know, cash or you know, you know, right. you have to make hard choices sometimes, unfortunately. And you know, I'm I'm sorry to bring up something sore, you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here, here's the thing you learn along the way. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you're going to do some things that you just go, wow, what the hell was I thinking about? Um, you know, I mean, I, there's things happen for a reason. I mean, there's a lot of things from that movie that would help me later on in my career. I mean, I hooked up with the guy that played the gay ninja who was, uh, who was a sword master. His name is Dan speaker. And I'm still friends with him to this day. Um, we, he ended up, we became friends. We actually became, we were friends before this, but we lost contact. We it was at a Bruce Lye audition, (laughs) Bruce Lee impersonator. Uh, and, and these guys, they, they, they had this audition down in Hollywood and the the casting was, all right, this is what I need to see from you guys. But a lot of guys going to go warm up. 
go ahead, work out, warm up in the parking lot, and then we'll call you in one by one. So everybody in the parking lot starts fighting each other, free sparring. I mean, start slugging at each other, going hard. And I'm like, going, what the hell? And then what happened was I looked at this guy and I was like thinking, well, is he going to start swinging at me? And he looked at me and goes, dude, I'm not going to, I'm not into this, into this crap. And we just became friends right there, but I lost his phone number. So a lot, four months later, he's in this movie glitch. And, and I was dude, do you remember when we started talking? Oh my God. So he ended up working on, he was end up being swordmaster on hook and he ended up hiring me on it. So, and we're still friends to this day. I mean, we, you know, we still talk at like at least once a week. I mean, so, and you know, things happen, you know, and uh, other things happen from that. But the thing is, is, um, yeah, do I regret doing it? Yeah. I mean, to a point, but, but, you know, the thing is, it's in the past. There's nothing, you know, it's, a, if it's, a, it's different times, different situations. And, you know, yeah, do I regret it? No, not really. I mean, yes and no. I mean, some of the things, some of the 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 role that I was forced to do, yeah. But the thing is, is you know, yeah, you know, I learned something. I did a project with Ernie Hudson. This is this this is about maybe ten years ago, and I asked him. I said, "What would you have done in this type of a situation?" And he told me because this is what I would have done and he kind of said you get the you do everything you can to get the part then once you're in then you start telling the producer and director to the role that they might not uh they might not have seen uh and you can kind of shed light to them once you get you know and, and he did that with a couple of things he started explaining to me certain films and tv shows that he worked on where they had the stereotypical black uh stereotype and he says you know i think we would bring in more viewers if i did this way and like that or like this and that's how things were i mean but back then in the 80s asian actors had no clout you had to do what was asked yeah yeah, I mean, it, it, we, I mean, now we have what uh, the, you know, it, there's all these films that are out with Asian leads, and you're starting to get their, you're starting to get more power with what they're doing, and that's great. But back then, you didn't have that. You were lucky. Yeah. You were lucky if, if if you were if you if you were asked to play the stereotype. So it's just it is what it was, you know. Yeah, you didn't have a John M. Chu there to pull people right. up. They, yeah, uh, we didn't have crazy goodness. rich Asians. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, that, one of the people is, you, you know, yeah, go ahead. one of the people you ran with at the comedy store that you gave me a clip of and you wanted me to play was uh, the late <laughs> Charlie Hill. And I mean, oh, yeah. talk about being up against a wall, Native American comedian. That was even right. harder back then. But oh yeah, I'm gonna play a I'm gonna play a clip of him. Because you wanted me to, and this is him. It's just like a double whammy. It's so great. Of all the people to have him on is Richard Pryor, and it's just yeah. an amazing clip. And it kind of captures um, kind of what we're going through now with all the racial tension. And um, I mean, there was racial tension back then. There's been all through history, and we're having a huge resurgence of it. But it's so great to hear this clip of 
Charlie, a Native American comedian, on Richard Pryor's show, and you hear Richard in the beginning with just such reverence, you know, introducing yeah. him, and you can tell it's like this kindred spirit thing. And I know you, yeah, and hanging out with you and Charlie before he passed away at the store when we were at Lila Lee's thing, um, you introduced oh, yeah. me to him, yeah. and just <laughs> the the reverence, all the you know, comedians had that were minorities coming up at the store. I mean, you guys, I mean, thank goodness Mitzi recognized that. Yeah. And it's a yeah, real I tribute mean, to her. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I did stand up because I was sick and tired of those stereotypical roles. You know, I was like, Oh no, I can't do this. How do I explain this to my family? How do I, how do I, how do I hold my head up high and say, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm perpetuating a stereotype. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. You, you, I can't, you know, that's why I kind of left after that, you know? Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's play Charlie Hill in this uh, yeah. fantastic clip here. I'd like to introduce oh. now a uh, new talent on the show, a man that I met that gave me my name, uh, Lahunji, means uh, black spirit. Uh, and uh, he's an Indian brother, uh, Iroquois Nation. Uh, Mr. Charlie Hill, please welcome me. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? I, um, you get problems doing my act, you know, because I, uh, know a lot of you white people never seen an Indian do stand-up comedy before, you know. Like, for so long, you probably thought that Indians never had a sense of humor, you know. We never thought you were too funny either. (laughs) See some people back there putting their chairs in a circle. Mm. Uh. My name is Charlie Hill, Sagoli. I'm uh, Oneida. I'm from Wisconsin. It's part of your coin nation. My people are from Wisconsin. We used to be from New York. We had a little real estate problem. I came out here, uh, Los Angeles, a few years ago. I, uh, I don't drink, huh? No, don't drink. Firewater the Indians, it's just like kryptonite. Uh, here, drink this, sign this, move here. You know what I mean? Uh, Indians. You know, people come up to me now, too, and they say, can you speak Indian? And there are like over 300 different tribes. You know, can you speak Indian? It's like saying, hey, can you speak Caucasian? Uh, <laughs> But that's, uh, that's the name they give us, Indians. That's Indians is the name Christopher Columbus gave us, which is incorrect. He named us Indians because he thought he was in India, you know. I'm sure glad he wasn't looking for Turkey. <laughs> changed a lot of things. Columbus discovered America. They taught me that when I was a kid. Columbus discovered Indians, you know. Uh, that was my education. Uh, you see, like, black people, Indians were driven to all-white schools, you see. Except the black people got the buses, the Indians were just driven. Uh, I went to Custer Memorial Junior High, you know. And, uh, <laughs> tell me about, you know, a lot of things I couldn't relate to, you know. Like the pilgrims, they weren't my forefathers, you know. Yes. Pilgrims came to this land 400 years ago as illegal aliens. You know? <laughs> 
Now, we used to call them whitebacks. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Bring back some memories there, John. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Uh, on Thanksgiving, you know, the, the store was open 365 days out of the year. Right. Um, so... What would happen was on Thanksgiving is usually the thinnest night as far as the lineup was concerned, because you know everybody's either went home or or they're taking the taking the the week the week off you know, or that that day off for their just to be with the family and stuff or just kind of just right. take the day off. So mm-hmm. to me, it was never it was Thanksgiving was never really a, a you know a big holiday for me and. So I I thought, well, you know, what the hell? Yeah, I always would sign up for spots because, you know, the other clubs were usually some of the store. I think, I can't remember, but, you know, the Improv, the Laugh Factory, and the store were probably open, but the rest of the clubs weren't because, you know, they didn't bring in the traffic like they like you would at, at those clubs. But um, I don't forget this. I, every year, it was, Mitzi would always put me with, Charlie together. <laughs> yep. And um, yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun because those days was was the nights where Charlie was full of piss and vinegar, and I mean he he had fire under his ass more than more than any other night I've worked with him before. And every year I'd be sitting, you know, you know how we'd all sit in the back. And uh, at the club, and Charlie um, goes, Charlie looked at me and goes, I guess it's you and me again this year, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he was just, uh, I mean, I just sit there. I mean, all the comedians would just come and just watch because they knew he was about to light the audience on fire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. But, yeah, he was just, I, I miss him. I miss him dearly. I miss him. Yeah, every time I think about it, I was like, oh, man, he was such a – he had such a spirit to him, you know? I can always tell when I talk to you about the store, he's the one you miss the most. I can always tell that you yeah, guys well, kind of had this yeah. kindred spirit together with each yeah. other. We, I mean, yeah, we hung out after, We hung out outside a club a lot because um, mm-hmm. we both – we had two common loves that we both had, martial arts and baseball. Believe it or not, you know. So, but here's the funny thing. I mean, he, you know, do you know he formerly trained with Helen Mirren? And no, wow, hell yeah. no. Yeah, there's. Wow. She had a book. We we were hanging out. We just had lunch one one day, and and we went to a what we call now a rare bookstore. And he goes, check this out. Look at this. And he, and he she he saw her book. He said, I trained with her, you know, before. And da da da. And he opened up the book and. There's this fold-out picture of her teaching a class, and and then there's like a her with with the class posing for a photo, and, and there was Charlie. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, he, he freaked out when he says, "Oh my god, that I haven't seen that picture. Never saw that picture." And I was, you know, it was just like, wow. And then he said, "I didn't sign a release for that. What the hell? Where's my money?" Yeah. <laughs> and so he said, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, My man. day job well, is in clearances at Disney still, so you know. Yeah. It's all about oh, intellectual God. property, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's uh, let's move on. You, you, 
you were you wanted to talk about some of your uh, touch quickly on a few of your nightmares, um, and then we'll talk about your oh. your triumphs health after that. Health spots, but uh, ah, no, the health spots are more fun than the triumphs. <laughs> well, let's do that. Go ahead. Tell me. Yeah, tell me about going yeah, up after number... Sam. Tell me about going up after Sam. Sam. Oh God, you, you know it's. When I was when I became a paid regular at the comedy store, first off, what happened was I was a non-paid regular for about a year, a little over a year, um, and you had to prove yourself on on Monday nights and and other nights, and you know you never know if she was going to pick you to become a paid regular or not. Sometimes she would, sometimes she wouldn't, but you know it was very hard to become a paid regular. I'm not saying that I was especially gifted or anything like that, but what happened was, you know, you had to really show that you wanted it. So, and, and you had the skills, skills to learn and grow and stuff like that. So uh, when I became a paid, I was, I, I, I'm going a long way around it, but um, I had to go down to La Jolla for a little over a week with Dave Tyree and Dave Tyree pretty much rode my ass every freaking night after, after a set. And we did two shows a night, three shows on the weekends. And he would he'd sit there and watch me and just what the hell were you thinking about doing this? Da, da, da. You know, he was just on my ass every night trying to get me so I could, you know, get rid of my bad habits. So I started listening to what Tyree had to give me, and and then I started and same thing with Richards, and I started piecing it all together and making it work for me. And then Mitzi, I remember getting the the uh, the the weekly lineup for that week i was on the main room every night that week i'm like going wow okay and i was like wow this is pretty cool i was really high on that until i saw who was on before me uh-huh oh my god <laughs> it was uh, sam wasn't first, it first was sam and then then um I, I don't know how this works. I, I think what happens is, you know, Argus or somebody kind of reports to Mitzi about what happens. And then, Argus you know, Hamilton, who's basically yeah, yeah. the so, mascot and the oldest comedian that, like, had a regular tenure at the store, right, basically. Yeah, yeah. He had, yeah. like, 40-something Tonight Show spots. I mean, yeah. the, guy's, the guy's done a hell of a lot, and he's still there, so... So Argus or, or the Tau Community would kind of report. And then, you know, you kind of, like, first week was Sam. So I was like, okay. And, you, you know, first night was just hell. Hell. I can't begin to tell you. You just, you, you're hating life. And you're questioning, why the hell am I doing this? Why? Why, why do you hate I... it? What happens? Because. The, when you when you when Sam gets off stage and he high fives you and you you get up on you go on, you look at the audience, they're in this 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 comedic drug induced haze that they just like you see their eyes and their heads still spinning off of what Sam just did. So what you have to do as a comedian is turn that ship around so that they can follow you. So the hard part about all that is following a strong, not just a strong act, but a, but a, but an icon, but iconic act that 
the audience already have in their heads. And you could see them. They're like going, all right, Sam just got to say, what the hell are you going to do? <laughs> and you're just like, okay, so you got to stick to your guns. You got to stick to your foundation of, of everything you learn. You got to kind of do, you got to really believe in your act and the structure of how you set things up to get your, to get yourself to that point. So you can turn the audience around and, you know, this is where you really learn whether you have it or not, you know, and then that was for the whole, the whole week it was, I would follow Sam. I was like, Oh God. So, but the thing was, is first night, Oh, I got my ass kicked. I could, I was lucky if I got one laugh, it was, it was horrible. And then I thought about it. And then some of the comedians go, look, man, just stick to it. You, you're going to go through this. You're going to through this. So then next slide, same thing. And it got a little bit better, got a little bit better, but still, you know, it, towards the end, I kind of learned how to deal with it. And, and I never realized how much I learned until I would perform at other clubs. You would learn, you, you, you'd play with these other performers that were not at that level or, and and you just go, oh wow, okay. I can I, you you kind of see where you, how much you've grown and how you how you can command a room, and 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 turn an audience around if somebody before you just snuck up the room. You 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 don't realize that until you leave the, leave a store uh, for 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 a show or a week or whatever, until and you come back and you go, wow, okay, that you learn, you know you you pick things up. So, and that's, that's what happened. Then about a month, month and a half later, I same thing lineup. I was like, okay, well, I was, I was kind of worried about this time. I was like, all right, what's, how's this going to work? Uh, I'm, I'm on the main room all this week. Okay, great. So I get to the club and I, it was just a, a regular cup comic like me. I'm like, going, hmm, okay. All right. Then right before I get up on stage, Hey John, we got to put somebody in front of you. All right, who? Whatever. It's Robin Williams. He's working on some TV show. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! Oh right. So, so, <laughs> so he does like thirty something minutes. Just fucking whips the audience into this huge frenzy. I'm like, oh my god! And each after each laugh, I'm I'm like, going, oh god, how am I gonna? Uh, there's going to be no gas left in the audience by the time I get up. There's, it's not going to happen. Blah blah blah. I mean, he, and it just and he he does his act where this, he knows how he's going to work it. It crescendos to the end where it's the biggest laugh. I'm like, oh fuck, please don't laugh. Save something for me, please. God damn it. <laughs> so so I never forget this. I get he's he's he brings me up and then. He shakes my hand. He whispers on you. He goes, hey, man, I warmed him up for you. Have fun. <laughs> I don't like him. Fuck you, Robin. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I have yeah. my so – it's funny you bring up Robin. It's funny you bring up Robin. I'm going to tell this story really quick, if it's okay. Um, yeah. I ended up taking – thanks to you, I ended up taking classes at Amy Poehler and – uh, the wonderful Upright Citizens, Upright Citizens Brigade uh, Improv School and, uh, you know, now founder of every sitcom actor known to man, you know, it used right. to be the Groundlings, now it's UCB. And I probably right. could be on a sitcom by now if I decided not to uh, work a day job. 
Um, I could have taken the advanced classes, everything, but I had a great time there. And they used to have on Mondays, of course, the last Monday of the month, or I believe that's my, from my memory when it was, it was uh, the improv jam and they'd always have a guest show up. So (laughs) it was one of the two weeks I got to do it and I get up on stage and I'm like, well, he just stopped by and he like literally showed up with his backpack, takes it off, and they're like, Robin Williams. And I'm on stage with Robin Williams having to do improv, John. Wow. That's awesome. That's <laughs> like, awesome. What, what, what? Like, I'm going to fly with God through the sky. What do I do? And I Magic. hung with him. I hung with him yeah, for awesome. what I remember because it's, of course, an out of body experience. Like, Yes. I'm in it. Go, 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 go. And he's like 50 steps ahead of me, but I'm trying to hang with him. And I don't remember half of what I did. And all I know is it was super filthy. And then the other people went up. The other people went up. We did a whole scene with him. <laughs> it was just like, wow, holy that's shit. Awesome. And we all got off stage. And this was about probably four years before he died. And it was just insane. Uh, he was doing the yeah. uh, the sitcom on CBS, and uh, oh. he just he just was driving around apparently, and telling ah, I'm gonna do some improv over at UCB. Yeah. You know, it's just like when people would drop in at your club. You know, when yeah. Richard, you know, they weren't like Richard. They'd show up. I want my spot, and then you'd get bumped. You know, for. Right. You know, Chappelle to come in and do three hours, you know, well, right, not right, in your day. Right. Well, but back then it was, you know, Richard went to yeah. do, you know, 45 minutes. Okay. Well, looks like I'm not going up tonight or I'm going up right. at 1 a.m. It happens to yeah. all of us. <laughs> yeah. You know, here's the thing, you know, um, here's the thing, what you said about, let me tell you this. I remember it doesn't matter whether you complete it or not. This, whatever you think this journey is with, with comedy or, or anything. I, Argus told me this one thing. I remember we're, we're, we're in the celebrity softball league. We were, we were going, we're playing universal studios. I mean, well, we're playing softball against guys like Michael Bolton. <laughs> you remember him? Fuck. And, and we're driving. <laughs> we're, yeah. And, and we're driving back. Uh, we're, we, uh, Mitzi would hire this bus to just ship us back to the club and, and, um, and we all be talking guys like Argus and Charlie Hill and they all sit there and just tell us stories. I mean, just stories about what it was like then with Letterman and all these people back then. And I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. But Argus said this one thing that I'll never forget. And this is what I'm passing on to you. It's just, it doesn't matter if you make this your life career or not. Um, it, it, what what's important is that you take what you can from what you're doing at the time and apply it to whatever it is you're going to do with the rest of your life. I mean, you know, stand up teaches you how to, you know, be a good public speaker, do presentations at your job or whatever, you know. And so you so you don't fear. You you, you have no fear, yeah, you because know, you've played, you know, to to drunk crowds that that says tell me a joke ass you know whatever you know you, you you've dealt with that as as opposed to dealing with a board meeting where you got to present the next project that you guys are doing it's not a big deal in comparison you know so you take whatever it is that you learn from from everything that you do and 
and make it work for you in whatever it is you're doing now with your life. So it is what you know. It is what it is. You know, it's not. Oh, it's I totally not get Everybody's you. supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Go it's ahead. what helps with being a multi-hyphenate like you. I mean, you're fighting. You're. Sun coordination, your stand-up, it's all kind of from the same philosophy, whereas uh, I can relate. I was an entertainment journalist for 30 years, yeah. and I had these insane research skills, and I had photographic memory since I was like 12 of directors, producers, all this. Right. That got me my job at Variety because I had this photographic memory of all this movie knowledge. And then I was able to do great interviews there. And then that took me on to when I was in my downtime, I was working on game shows. And I ended up writing questions for game shows because I had this insane bunch of trivia knowledge. And then at Disney, in clearances, you need to know IP and all of a sudden, I was yeah. the one everybody walked down the hall to. Greg, does this look like something yeah. from a movie that you know? Oh, yeah, that's a complete ripoff of this movie. You know? <laughs> and then you need to go back to the producer. Yeah. Are you trying to rip off this movie? And they go quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. That was an yeah. inspiration. Well, you can't do that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It, 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 yeah, that's awesome. all your skills are always going to take you yeah. to your career. You're so right with that. Just, yeah, you need, and that's why it's okay to have different kinds of jobs because it's always going right. to carry you through into yeah. other areas. And especially, I mean, we're in a world now where a lot of people are out of work and are probably going to have to change careers and the entertainment yep. industry is decimated. So, yeah. You know, I'm getting pretty used to. I'm practicing my line, John. Would you like fries with that? I'm getting good at it. You know, <laughs> so I got my little playset from the toy store, where I got the fries and the Big Mac and everything. So there I'm getting my memory. Yeah. I'm getting my muscle memory back from my first job I had when I was 14. So I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready for the apocalypse job at the. McDonald's at the end of the universe. Anyway, um, you want to hear your clip from MTV? Come on, man. It's been a little while, right? All right. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Let, let's, we've been talking about John's stand-up. Let's hear some of it. And here was – build this up. Tell me your mindset and what led up to this uh, MTV gig. Uh, what happened was uh, I was on um, I was on Into the Night, and then what happened was that kind of broke things open, um, that people could start trusting me, that I wasn't going to be a loose cannon to say some crazy ass shit on national TV. You know, I don't know if you under if the the audience can understand this. You know, comedians can kind of be this, these loose cannons. They, you know, you get up on stage, you kind of say some crazy stuff that ends up being funny and then you end up, you know, you kind of riff and, and things can happen like that. But, and then you develop a reputation for saying crazy stuff. Well, John, but I'll interrupt you. When you. TV back then you needed what was called your tight five and it had to yeah. be clean, yep. like yep. clean as the driven snow, no swears, right. no risque material, right. nothing like, 
nothing yeah. controversial at all, which strangely enough is how the world's gotten back to. It's gotten very yeah. super PC. You can't be offensive. Right. You can't offend anybody. So go on. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I was always pushing the edge. I had to figure out what I could get away with and what I couldn't. And that took me years to work on that tight, tight five, tight seven, whatever you want to call it. Um, so what happened was, uh, there's this one bit I do at the end where I was very passionate about, you know, um, to deal with racism. And what happened was I was like, you know, I'm sticking to this. I'm letting this, if I get on a show, great. If I don't, then screw them. So that was my mentality back then. And I was hoping one show would take me on. And it was Rick because it was on at, I think it was 11:45 or something. So he was able to get away with it. Not 11:30. There was a it was 11:45 and I was on the, I was the last guy to go on. So I was on after midnight. So that could I could do a lot. I could get away with a lot more. So and that's that's what they did. Um so it it had to do with censorship. I mean cuz I, I I don't know if they still do this, but, you know, between, you know, uh, seven to nine, you can only show or do so much like a family hour. And then from nine to 10, you can kind of be a little bit risque. Then 10 to oh, 11, it's you still can be there. very, yeah. It's still there. You could, yeah. but yeah. So that, that's the way it was when, when you did your comedy spots, you know, when, depending on what type of a show you went on, you had to kind of adhere to their rules. Like tonight's show is very Midwestern very very uh very safe um unless you are somebody like richard Pryor, you know and then when sam went on he he made fun of it as a family the family hour comedy thing you know yeah. so yeah you know so so i mean it's just it just depends on the show that you're you're gearing to go on and, and where how how their relationships are with the censors so i was you know i was up for for a couple shows, but it, it would always kind of fall through. I never understood why. Now I understood why. Um, but you know, when when I when I did the thing for Rick D's, they called me and said, "Is this what you would? Is this 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 type? It was a, it was seven for me. Is this is your seven something you wanted? You you're okay with on uh, for 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 Rick's show?" I go. Yeah, I'm okay if you guys are okay with it. Okay, well, we got to – let's l- just work that until you hear from us. So I didn't hear anything from them um, for I, – I, I, I think I did three months before – I practiced every night for three months before I got up on stage. Before I before – I not before I got – before I went on the show to do it. So every night I was up, I would work that tight seven um, just so it was to the – you know, uh, what do you call them? Clean, clean as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I just worked out all the kinks. I just worked out all the kinks. And the thing was, it uh-huh. was I was in, in insinuating sex on on the final joke. So uh-huh. and I was like, going, okay, are you guys are you guys gonna be okay with this? And and the talent coordinator said, I think we're good with it. You know, it's a, a, we gotta pass this through uh, the censors. Standards are okay with this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I had. So they, so I said, I, I think I'm fine. And then on the day of the show, they said, we need to see your act again. 
It's like, you've seen it for last. I sent you Uh-oh. tapes for the last three months. And they said, okay, but we need to see exactly what you're going to be doing now. So I said, okay. So I did it. There was no audience. It was just the camera guy, and I just did my joke. And I said, okay. And I didn't hear anything from them, nothing. So I didn't know this, but I was, it was, it was a comedy. It was uh, me, uh, Drew Carey, and Shirley Hempel, late Shirley Hempel. Um, oh, Jesus. And yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought, I'm the new guy here. You know, I'm the least known out of those three. I thought I'd be the first one to go. So Shirley was host was co-hosting with Rick on that show. So she went up first. So I thought, okay, I'm next. You know, and then all of a sudden Drew goes, "Yeah, man, I'll see you at the end of the show." He goes, "I'm I'm on next." I go, hey, I thought I was supposed to be next. He goes, "Apparently not. They made a change." <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah. And so so I was the last guy to go. So I think it was because it was after midnight that I was able to yeah. get away with it. Yeah. yeah. But you weren't able to do that joke on uh, MTV, right? I think I did. I th- yeah, I was able to because it was cable. Oh, okay. Yeah, cable. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Let's run this, and then let's talk about your stunt coordination. So uh, <laughs> let's hear John okay. on MTV, man. Here we go. How you guys doing? Yeah. yeah. I'm not feeling too good. Before our show here, uh, went and had some Thai food that was a little too spicy. You can you can tell what's spicy on the menu uh, by the little red star on the uh, entree. Mine didn't have a red star. It had a picture of a guy in a toilet going. Ah, <laughs> uh, so I guess I know what I'll be doing after the show. So. So you guys probably look at the only Chinese kid in school that copied off a white kid during math exams. <laughs> oh man, I remember when I came home with those bad report cards, my mom would just lose it. My mom sat there and she said to me, Go to your room and get me something to spank you with. So I'm in here, in my room, and I'm like, uh, here mom, how about this Nerf baseball bat, huh? My mom got pissed. She runs in my room. First thing she got for is, remember those old Hot Wheels tracks? <laughs> I guess we do, yeah. <laughs> my mom was like Indiana Jones with that thing, man. <laughs> man. And I was thinking, you know, had I understood English, I probably would have done better in school. <laughs> it's true, I didn't start learning English until I was about six years old. So listening to my teacher was like trying to understand Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> like wah 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 wah. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, no thanks. I'll just take that zero. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's a trip, you know. I had one of these, I had one of these moms that when I was growing up, if I was a bad boy, my mom would pretend to call the police. <laughs> my mom's in there. She go, oh, you're a great young man. Hello? Yeah, is the policeman? Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a bad boy here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can come to my house and shoot him for me? Uh, 
Uh, but you guys got to understand, I come from a strict traditional Chinese family where the parents expect you to go to college, get out in the real world, become maybe a doctor, an engineer, or play a Korean on MASH. <laughs> <laughs> and my father was really pissed off when I told him I want to be a stand-up comedian. My father looked over at me and he said, Yo! <laughs> Great, now you white people are thinking, damn man, they talk like that, really, for sure. <laughs> uh, so I recently got married not too long ago. Uh, didn't get no present from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I married a Jewish girl. <laughs> and scary, I mean, and to make, to make things fair on both sides of our family, we decided to have a non-religious wedding. And some people on her side of the family were really pissed off it wasn't a Jewish ceremony. So I tried to explain to him, I said, you know, look, this is my philosophy. I think true love goes beyond a person's color and religion, you know, and, <laughs> and they couldn't see it. They were going, no, no, you know, it's, it's got to be a Jewish ceremony. You know. so I, and they were giving me a hard time, even up to the day of the wedding. So this is what I did. I got back at them, right? So we're standing here. And the minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. So I kissed my wife. Then I looked over them and said, I am now an American citizen. It was really scary at the wedding reception because both sides of our family were trying to outdo each other by seeing which race has been through the most hardships. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, it's Jewish people. We built the damn pyramids in Egypt. Oh no, Mr. That nothing. Chinese people are slaves too. We built our railroads all across America. Oh yeah, then after that, we won in the, in the desert for 40 damn years. And nobody have a map? <laughs> That's no suffering, you guys just lost. <laughs> oh man. Woo! man I, and I, I was watching this TV talk show one day, and the topic was interracial dating. It had this, it had this girl, yeah, this, this white girl, uh, her black boyfriend, and her mother who was against the relationship. And the mother said, well, I don't think any white parents should let their kids go out with any minorities because when they go out with our kids and they have sex with them, that's their way of ultimately getting back at them for all the suffering, you know, and, and prejudice and stereotyping we put them through all these years. <laughs> Whoa, who is this bimbo, man? Yeah, like every night, I'm with my wife thinking, so Asian can't drive, huh? <laughs> How's my driving now? <laughs> Thanks a lot, you guys. Good night. Tight five by John Kring there, everybody. Give a big round of applause. <laughs> oh, man. Does that take you back or what? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it was it's like, a, it was weird. I remember um, we shot at the Warner Santa Monica at the time. That was what it was. Uh, it was right next to what is now that Best Buy on, on Santa Monica. It's now okay. Oprah's. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's something, it's something else now. But it, it was Warner Brothers at the time. It was a soundstage. There was over 3,000 people that showed up. Um. And um, and you got there. They shot like maybe five episodes that day. So mm -hmm. there was a line outside of people waiting. People were sleeping 
in line to get in that they had to see the show because they shot it for a whole week uh, or two weeks, mm-hmm. I think. And they shot a, they shot the whole season and I think within two weeks. So, uh, you, you know, we parked the car and we'd walk in and there's people just there. Then they had the lineup. They had the name of all the comedians, uh, on the lineup. Uh, so the, so the people that were waiting would see who they're going to see that night and people kind of know you already. And I'm like, Oh, wow, this is kind of weird people knowing you already. And here you are just working your ass off and doing your stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, you realize people start recognizing you from what you're, what you're doing. <laughs> But you oh, know, yeah, I, that, the thing with that with, with that show was um, that ro- my my segment was rotated a lot, and I got a lot of work at the clubs um, uh, all over the country because of that. That was just like, man, this is this is a <laughs> this is a blessing, you know. I didn't realize I made it until I, you know, as a stand comedian, you 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 know you're going to work Friday and Saturday nights, and then one. One night I decided, nah, yeah, let's just take the night off and just kind of hang. So we decided to go to um, Universal City Walk and it just opened. I mean, it was like the hot place to be at the time. So we so said, well, let's just go there and grab dinner and maybe catch a movie. And we got there, we walked, and I got stopped at least 15, 20 times oh, by awesome. somebody who saw the spot. I was like, oh, wow. And <laughs> It's just like, oh my god! And they started talking to me as if I've known them all my life. You know, they said, like, "Nice oh, wow, Durant okay. Durant haircut, John." That's what they said. Yeah, yeah. everybody, yeah. go find the clip on uh, on YouTube. The one thing everybody loves about John back in the eighties is his Duran Duran haircut. He had he had the good yeah, mullet, that... not the bad mullet, the good Asian mullet, the good one. Yeah, the tight one. Yeah. What's funny? We is have that only about still, like. What were you saying, John? Sorry, man. That that Go that ahead. headshot still stands at the store. It's still in the OR store. I know, <laughs> I know. Every time I take a new girl in there, I go, I know John. No. I did that for a while, but no, I have my present woman that I've been with for the last two years, solid, gonna marry her. But awesome. I would, honestly, John, I'd go. See, I know that guy on the wall. <laughs> I know his headshot. See, and they go, does he still perform here? I go, some nights, you know, you fib. You know. Some nights. Maybe he'll go on after Argus. We'll see, you know. <laughs> we have about seven yeah. minutes left in the stream here, and we're not going to get to – I'm, I'm inviting you back. For another episode oh. where we can talk about All your right. stunt work, your martial arts oh, work. Yeah. We've talked for two hours, and uh, this is the you know uh, uh, digestible length of a podcast. Yeah, but no, I'd I love you. to have you back and talk about uh, what you're doing now. And uh, sure, let's just kind of wrap it up with the final thoughts of comedy here. Um, you had kind of a homecoming sure. going back when you went to the comedy store reunions, what's the one thing you think you drew from that of seeing all your old brethren there at the reunions and uh, what you got out of that? Uh, We we were showing a picture on the uh, show page of you and Jim Carrey, you know, what do you, what's your last memory from that? Here's the thing about that is um, you realize that, 
you've kind of been in the trenches with all these guys for all these years. I mean, I, you know, bringing up Charlie Hill again, it's funny. We talk about, we talk about the hell gigs more than we do the successful nights more than anything. It's kind of like a war veteran talking about the battles as opposed to the victories, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like that. And I never, I didn't realize that until Charlie said so we're both, you know, this is like, we got, I mean, we were friends then, but we were even later on. And he kind of told me, he goes, you know, you got to understand this. You, you, you played at one of the toughest, the toughest comedy club in the world. I was like, okay, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, look, any given night you were up against guys like Dice, Tommy Davidson, Martin Lawrence, Robin, Jim Carrey, you know, the name Kinnison, the names go on prior. The names go on and on and on. And you stuck to, you, you, you were able to, to, uh, to last, you know, for almost 10 years. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot. That says a lot. And it's like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, cause you're so much into the fight. You don't think about what's going to happen the next day. You're thinking about what's happening now and how you're going to survive. How are you going to, so I, we're, you kind of go through this separately, but then when you're, when you step back, you realize you were in this all together. And you know, and the brotherhood, the, the the camaraderie you make with these guys is is it's it's unset. I mean, like when I see Argus, like when I saw him at at Mitzi's uh, at Mitzi's uh, service, you know, he, he the look in his eyes is you know is right. He knew you know where I stood and and you know what I've done and how our relationship was and still is, is still is now. You know, stuff like that. Steve Kravitz is the same way. You know, he kind of, he mentored me through, you know, with Tyree. So, and, and, you know, I still talk to Kravitz, you know, on a weekly basis. We were still friends. We talked, you know, it's, it's that through the trenches relationship you go through that, that bonds your, your, your relationship with each other. Well, John, I want to end on this. Thank you for mentoring me. Because oh, I've gotten dude, the last dude, doing yeah. stand up and it's been fun. And now I'm podcasting, which is the next generation. And now we're he- now yeah. we all have to stand up in our living room or at some comedy <laughs> club into a camera, you know, so we don't get the COVID on everybody. But um, right. I'm going to end on uh, a few things here. I'm going to end on one of my gigs from my homecoming yeah. in Chicago. But I wanted to just you know, thank you for everything that you did and uh, help me out through the years because it was incredible. We had great times. We had great times. Yeah. 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 It was fun. fun. Yeah. I got to see John do a a little bit of a comeback. We both played speaking (laughs) of hell gigs. What's Dante's last name? It's a shout out to Uh, Dante. Dante Rusholi. Yeah. Thanks for letting us play a bowling alley in Tahunga. It made our world. Holy hell. Anyway. That was, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. I kept, you and I kept calling it uh, the Thunderdome, the uh, comedy yep. room at the end of the universe. That was it. <laughs> yep. One person enters, nobody leaves. Yeah, that's about there it. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it's the, the audience that leaves. <laughs> yes. Well, John, you have anything to plug really quick? Um, we'll, we could deal with that next time. I mean, I'm working on a documentary right now. So other than that, 
Yeah, we we can talk about we could definitely we could go more detail next time. Definitely. Wonderful. Well, John, thank you very much for giving your career knowledge and comedy and everybody out there. You can listen to other shows on the Greg Hollywood podcast network. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple podcasts and you can find us uh, pretty much everywhere. uh, Stitcher everywhere where podcasts are. Thank you for listening. Thank you, John, for being a guest. And um, anytime, man. And I'm going to play a clip from my homecoming show in Chicago about the hell I went through in school. Uh, Everybody, thank you for listening, and uh, have a great night. All right, this is for my uh, local peeps. Yeah. All the people over here from – I went to – Alessandro Volta Grammar School. Yeah. The most boring fucking grammar school. So boring that they named the goddamn school after the guy that invented the battery. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. What do you want to name the school? Yeah, the guy invented the battery. Fuck it. Call it the Alessandro Volta Grammar School. Our boring ass mascot with the thunderbolt. <laughs> Thunderbolt! Eh, this is wonderful. I mean, they couldn't even call it something like the Energizer, the Duracell, make women think of their vibrators or some shit with this, you know? That way our team could say, hey, we take a licking and keep on ticking, right? <laughs> eh. No, not even that. Got my masculinity back when I went to Theodore Roosevelt High School, the Rough Riders. Yeah, sounds like a bar right here on Clark. Yeah. Rough yes. Men are men. The high school. Yeah. Then I went to Columbia College, which we had no sports teams whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think our mascot was the Toger. Oh. Or maybe the 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 uh, the, the uh, kid that the parents threw away. I think that was what it was called. The obnoxious prick? The elitist prick? I know I was that there. Yeah, they could have called us the ten. The elitist pricks are coming out on the fucking film field, yes. God But, um, there was this thing, going back to Volta, there was this insane 7th and 8th grade science teacher called Mr. Perna. And remember when you had to write sentences in school? You guys still have to write sentences in school? You know, I will not talk when the teacher is talking, blah, blah, blah. Fuck that. This guy was an asshole. He would do something called tact. Tact. You couldn't copy that shit. He knows. It was the definition of the word tact. I know it to this day. I could recite it during fucking sex. I could do this. I could be sitting there going to town and go, Tack is good judgment, skillfully saying and doing what is suitable and proper under the existing circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> and she'd look up and go, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> exactly, I could do it a hundred times though. That's the best part. Yes.